Hey, welcome, welcome. This is the Ray Parrish Show. Thanks so much for tuning in. Cafeteriaism. Cafeteriaism, this is the new politics. Bernie Sanders goes after Amazon for being on welfare. We'll discuss why this is a job killer. Nancy Pelosi goes after full... Nancy Pelosi goes full cafeteriaism when it's most convenient. Do most politicians do this on the left? And also Kamala Harris, she doesn't survive identity politics. Is the Democratic Party out of touch with reality? We're going to get into that. And then lastly, did you see that? That's the part of the program where did you see what's going on in common culture, whether it's politics, pop culture, anything that's trending on Twitter. And the one thing I'm going to really talk about is somebody that I know personally, my friend Shane Q here from Sacramento. He made an appearance on The Voice and actually out of 40 candidates made the top 10. We're going to get into that. What are some things that everybody can learn from Shane Q's experience on The Voice, gaining global attention at that? But hey, let's let's get into this. Bernie Sanders goes after Amazon for being on welfare, and he pens a piece in the Time magazine that he co-authored with Congressman Ro Canna, criticizing billionaires for being on welfare, and, and it's called it's and the the piece is called "It's Time to Get Billionaires Off of Welfare." And you've been actually really seeing this how you've seen this mantra of it's immoral to be a billionaire and billionaires can't buy Bernie that you see like being a billionaire is such a bad thing, and we're gonna tell you why it's not. But let's first start off with what Bernie wrote, and it starts off, quote, Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, is the wealthiest person on earth, according to the Bloomberg Billionaires Index. He is now worth $168 billion. In fact, Bernie continues, in fact, since the beginning of the year, his wealth has increased by about $277 million every single day. Meanwhile, Mr. Bezos continues to pay many thousands of his Amazon employees wages that are so low. That, that they must rely on food stamps, Medicaid, or public housing in order to survive. In effect, the middle-class taxpayers of this country are subsidizing the low wages paid by the richest person on earth. That's nuts. But Jeff Bezos and Amazon are not alone. The Walton family of Walmart and many other billionaire-owned large and profitable corporations also get richer because of taxpayer support for their low-paid employees. The Walton family of Walmart is the wealthiest family in the country with a net worth of over $160 billion. This one family has owned more wealth than the bottom 40% of Americans. And this is this is where uh, – that's a close quote, by the way. This is the problem that I have especially with this line of thinking is that because there is a wealth disparity, that is wrong. But I actually have a problem with that because we don't, we don't make people richer by taking from the top. And then giving to the bottom. What we do is is how do you how how do you get people from the bottom to rise up and increase their wealth, increase their income mobility, so that way they can be up there in the millions. There's there's a report out there that says in the next in the next year by 2020 in San Francisco, in the Bay Area, there's gonna be ten thousand new millionaires. Meaning just two years ago. Many of them were probably making just under $100,000, but because of maybe their investment, maybe they took – maybe they partook in, uh, in the free economy. Maybe they took risks. Maybe they invented. Maybe they invested. Maybe they rose up in the ranks. They then became not just a one percenter but a millionaire. Let's talk about these millionaires that Bernie is talking about. The Financial Post has this thing called 15 CEOs who spent their entire careers at their companies. And, and I want to let you guys know what, what we're getting into because there's a lot that we have to unpack from Bernie's op-ed in, in, the, in Time Magazine. First, we really have to talk about wage mobility and this, this myth of there being a wealth gap between the rich and the poor. Let's really start off with some of the CEOs who spent their entire careers at companies. So, for example, Mary Barr of GM, she started out as a, for a summer job as a teenager inspecting panels at Pontiac Plant to, the automate, to, to become the automaker's first female CEO. How about, how about Doug McMillan? Do you guys know who that is? Doug McMillan's first job at Walmart was unloading trucks at a distribution center in Arkansas. 
Over the course of McMillan's career, he has been in the job – he has been in about every job at Walmart. He quickly made his way from a buyer in Oklahoma store to a series of management positions and headquarters in Bentonville, Arkansas. Do you guys want to take a guess at what McMillan's job title is now? He is now the CEO at Walmart after spending 33 years there. At what point do you kind of, you, do you have to ask yourself? At what point do you put do you put this on the employee for staying where they want to be and being complacent and being fine with that minimum wage job and not becoming a manager, not becoming a general manager, not seeking that higher position? Gaining that that skill, the, the networking skills, the customer skills that you can't necessarily teach in school or in college, nonetheless, that you have to take on, that you have to learn in that said position in early on to become these CEOs. And it doesn't stop there. Unsula Burns, who's an African American female, first joined Xerox as a 22 year old engineering intern. Burns, an engineer by training, joined Xerox right out of college and never left. She got a sense of what was it like to lead after serving as an executive assistant to the CEO, Paul Allaire. Sounds like a male, right? Paul, sounds like a male? That seems like earning, becoming her next position, which is she took over, she took over as CEO in 2009, meaning – not by the government forcing Xerox to say you need a woman, but the fact that the company told Ursula, you have earned this position. You know what it takes to start from the ground up. You did it on your own, and now you're a CEO. This should be for almost any entry-level position, and you actually have to be there. You, don't, you are not given the right to earn $80,000 from the get-go, and – and that is really at what point do you have to say it's up to that said employee to earn the wage that they deserve? But now let's go back to Amazon, and let's talk about their tax. Okay, that where does this come from? Where does Amazon pay its taxes? It comes from the number of federal corporate income taxes that they don't pay. But according to the U.S. United States Securities and Exchange Commission. Over the last three years, Amazon had paid $1.4 billion, $769 million, and also $1.2 billion, respectively, in taxes. These taxes include the payroll tax, income tax, local tax, not to mention the individual income tax paid by the hundreds of thousands of employees that Amazon employs. And we're going to get to that in just a moment. Also, Amazon has also spent $23 billion in research and development, more than any other U.S. company that the, more than any other U.S. company. Should we tax Amazon on that money that they spend? That money has actually resulted in a two-day shipping or three- to five-day shipping to now one-day or same-day shipping. The, that costs money to see how that works, to see how we – are we going to have the infrastructure in place? How does Amazon make it possible for millions of people across the United States, across the globe, to order something and have it to them at their doorstep that day? Because if it was that easy, then Amazon wouldn't have been the only one that has come up with the idea. There would have been 10, 20 other companies that would have competed for that and brought the cost down. But because they, they being Amazon – have been the only company in the last 100 years up until, what, 2017 when same-day shipping became, what, 2016, 2015? Just in the last three years, same-day shipping became a thing in the United States? That doesn't come easy. That doesn't come free. That cost money. That cost investment from Amazon. And Amazon, that, that's not just unique to Amazon. Amazon is just taking advantage of what is available to them. If you don't have a business, then of course you don't get a tax break. There are businesses, small businesses that can buy a lighting, that can buy electrical, that can pay somebody to do something, and they also get to write that thing off as an expense. It's just that Amazon does it at a much bigger proportion, but they still do pay income tax. They do still pay local tax. They still pay payroll tax, but 
if Bernie and his followers, his voters, his constituents have this line of thinking, damn well expect to there to be less jobs available. And, of course, Bernie Sanders' protege, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, tweeted out a picture of herself sitting in her luxurious, upscale condo that she probably, what, pays three to $4,000 a month on. She tweets out, me waiting on haters to apologize after we were proven right on Amazon and saved the public billions because – she, in her district, did not want Amazon coming to her district because she thought – because her thing was is that they didn't want to give Amazon a handout. The tweet continues in a string of tweets. While we're here, let's clear up some GOP disinfo. It's 1,500 jobs versus 25,000 jobs. The 25,000 jobs figure was a 10- to 20-year fantasy in Am for Amazon, not a promise or an agreement. In exchange for the lack of commitment, they wanted billions of public money, their year one jobs projections. Okay, but there's just only one problem with that. There's a couple of problems. First, this is how this works, is what Amazon is getting is a tax break. They're not taking money out of a general fund, meaning that if Amazon never came – if Amazon never comes to your district, that means you don't have any payroll tax. You don't have any income tax. You don't have local tax coming in, meaning you get zero or you get the payroll income and local tax, which I said what amounts to about three which is which amounts to about three billion dollars locally. Also, too, Karen Weiss over at the New York Times wrote on September nineteenth, twenty nineteen, so what, just three months ago? Am and the, the the title read the title reads Amazon has thirty thousand open jobs. Yes, you read that right. On Monday, Amazon said it had thirty thousand open positions in the United States, including full time and part time jobs, at headquarters offices, te in technology hubs and warehouses. Although the company has positions to fill across the country, Amazon's job boards list many more openings in Seattle area, California, by its new campus near Washington D.C. than than it does. Anywhere else. These vacancies, which Amazon said it hoped to fill by early next year, are permanent jobs and do not include seasonal positions for the warehouse workers and drivers that company typically hires to handle the spike in orders around Christmas, which is coming up in a couple weeks. More than half of the jobs are tech oriented, and roughly a quarter are for warehouse work, the company said. So instead of having what the 25,000 jobs over over the next 10 to 15 years they're now getting in another district not in her district 1500 jobs hooray AOC you did a stellar job and i really want to know i really want to know is there anybody go running up against her cuz i mean that's just in politics it just it's talk it, winning is about slogans Hope and change, that's a slogan, right, that you can put on a bumper sticker. How about 30,000 jobs lost? How about uh, – I mean you can easily take the picture of her sitting in her upscale apartment in New York and plastered on a billboard and said, I'm responsible for losing 30,000 jobs. That's it. That's, that's, I mean AOC can, can, can tweet back – tweet back at said – Billboard, if her challenger were to put it up there, but the but the truth of the matter, eighty percent of the population isn't on social media. It's it's kind of like when you know when you when you see these law and order shows and they're and they're in court and a lawyer makes a statement and the judge says you can't say that and the judge and the and the attorney says okay I take that back. The jury still said the jury still heard said comment. You can't unring the bell. In this case, if somebody were to say AOC lost 30,000 jobs and put a quote where you're citing that like the New York Times, which isn't conservative by any means, you can't unring that bell. And I really, I, I really urge somebody to do that. I, I really hope that somebody in New York, not just for Republicans, not just for Democrats, but just for jobs' sake. So – Let's also get to 
the co-author of Bernie Sanders' piece, Roe Cannon. Who is Roe? Roe, he's the congressman for California's 17th district, which includes Santa Clara and Silicon Valley. Who plays there? What sports team plays there? That's the San Francisco 49ers, who are owned by a billionaire, received a tax break on their stadium. They are owned, the San Francisco 49ers are owned by the York family, who are worth $2.5 billion. As a matter of fact, Thy Boy at the Mercury News has a piece titled, County County Assessor Sues Board for Giving 49ers Big Property Tax cut on Levi Stadium. And it continues, Santa Clara County Assessor Larry Stone is suing an assessment board that gave the 49ers a multi-million dollar property tax break, he says, shortchanged local government and school districts. Stone filed a lawsuit Monday challenging the assessment appeals board decision in to slash the 49ers annual property tax bill for Levi Stadium by $6 million and give the football team an immediate refund of $36 million. Retroactive Santa Clara Unified School District, City of Santa Clara, and other government agencies that are supposed to get a tax of the cut revenue of the $36 million. Now, this is now I, I want to interject something here. So, for those of you guys that actually do know, maybe some of you guys don't know my background. My background comes as a former sports fanatic. I went by the moniker Dr. Depp, and I was trying to keep the Raiders in Oakland, who are now currently going to Las Vegas. And one of my main sticks was I don't want public handouts to a billionaire. We shouldn't raise taxes. And somebody from my Twitter account, Manny Martinez on Twitter, says, says to me, you bash the Raiders for wanting the city of Oakland to pay a stadium in Oakland, but you bash AOC because she's against – $3 billion tax break against a trillion dollar company. But there's a difference here. The The Oakland Raiders don't employ over 20,000 employees. The Oakland Raiders or the soon-to-be Las Vegas Raiders aren't this visionary company that revolutionize that revolutionize how people get their stuff. And here's another thing too, okay? In terms of football, there's a in terms of sports in general. Excuse me. There's a right way to give a tax break and even with Amazon, there's a right way to give a tax break. And then there's a wrong way. And the wrong way is leaving the hook or leaving the city on the hook for millions of dollars for a billionaire when said city doesn't get anything in return. Now, if you look at Neil DeMoss over at Baseball Prospectus, he's right. He, there's a long estimate of $33 million in value for the land where the San Francisco Giants currently play, which was donated by the local government for, for building the Giants' new stadium for free at no cost to the Giants, but it cost the city $33 million. $25 million worth of municipal fire, police, garbage services, and $83 million in foregone property tax because despite privately owned – the stadium nonetheless receives a full property tax exemption. But the thing that this piece leaves out is in and around that San Francisco Giants ballpark, there's development that's going on there. There's new tax revenue that's coming in. If you've ever been to the Embarcadero over in San Francisco, there's new condos that are being that are that are paying taxes. There's businesses that are paying taxes. And if it wasn't for the Giants, none of that said business would be there. But according to Rokana, who's a congressman representing the 17th district, he's, he's, he's playing this game of cafeteriaism. He's very anti-Amazon getting these tax breaks, even though they pay $30 billion in taxes. They pay billions in research and innovation. And if you look around your own house, how much stuff have you bought from Amazon that you've gotten under a day? So Ro, I tweeted him earlier or last night, if you're not okay with Amazon getting a tax break, are you okay with the San Francisco 49ers getting a tax break in your district? Haven't heard a damn thing from you. I even tweeted you on Rokana's website. He has on his website how many emails he responds to. I wonder, do, does that email count also signify tweeting? 
I asked him a very specific question. I cited sources, something that's happening in his district, something that a billionaire is taking advantage and taking away from school funds in his district, but not a damn thing from Roe. Oh, but he can write an op-ed with a presidential candidate going full progressivism, but not a damn thing in his district. That's what you call cafeteriaism. And, of course, I'm very much against government handouts to billionaires when there's nothing in return. If you look at the Bengals in Cincinnati, that city in Cincinnati, the city, the city of Cincinnati had to sell a public hospital just to pay off debt for a team that plays in a stadium 10 times out of the year. They don't make the playoffs, and they employ, what, less than 40 people a year? You have – Stadiums in Philadelphia, Indianapolis, Seattle are paying almost $100 million on stadiums that no longer exist where the cities are on the hook for that debt. That is irresponsible. But the thing is, yes, you speak out against billionaires when it's necessary, when there's nothing in return, when taxpayers are on the hook and they're losing money and, the, and billionaires are gaining money. But this isn't the case here. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez isn't losing money. The only thing that she's losing is money that she could have gotten. She's just playing this game of virtue signaling. And this is one of the reasons why I'm telling you right now that what, what AOC, what Bernie Sanders, what, what Roe is playing is they're, what, what they're speaking actually, what they're writing is San Francisco coffee shops. This is what, what San Francisco and New York, this is what they relate to. But the rest of the country doesn't relate to this. All you got to say, I mean, this is President Trump's going to have fun with this. Do you like my prosperous economy? Do you like unemployment rate in the Latino and African American community? If you don't like unemployment being low, elect Bernie Sanders so that he can take away all the businesses. Because here's the thing, and lastly, before I go to break, th this is the last thing I'm going to interject here because I got to go to break. If you think that taking or taxing billionaires, business owners, if you think that taxing them more won't change the way how they spend their money, you're sorely mistaken. Because if you think that these billionaires have Scrooge McDuck money bins just hanging around, and they can just throw it around and continue to invest, continue to spend money, continue to hire, that's just not the case. People are in it, these billionaires are in it for a profit margin. And if you take away that profit margin, they're not going to continue to hire. They're not going to continue to spend money in research and innovation. They're not going to open warehouses like they do here in West Sacramento where I live where they're going to employ warehouse workers or they're not going to spend money in teaching and in investing in, in tech training like I just read earlier. They're not going to do that if you take their money. We should not be worried about making somebody poorer. We should be worried about elevating somebody and making them richer. Wage mobility. That's how this works. Guys, I'm going to go to break. When we come back, we're going to talk about more about this cafeteriaism. Are our politicians like Nancy Pelosi invested in cafeteriaism? And as a Catholic, I got something to say about this. Don't go nowhere, guys. You are listening to The Ray Parrish Show. You're more than welcome. To call in 516-387-1820. 516-387-1820. This is the Ray Perez show. We'll be right back. Till the night time blazes on. All along I keep singing my song. This phase is always sometimes I get so crazy. But just know that I always stay. Cause you're my light through the haze. Come for a champion. Gone. No more words with it. Speak on 
Hey guys, welcome, welcome. You're listening to the Ray Parrish Show. Hey, thanks so much for tuning in. You know, the the main topic of today's show is cafeteriaism. Is this the new politics, or have we always had a sense of cafeteriaism? And what I mean by that is when you claim a faith or you claim to be a religion that you practice, but really you only pick and choose what you really like. And more specifically, this is what's been happening over the last week, as you guys are, are aware about the impeachment hearings, and Nancy Pelosi has been leading this. And last week, she was giving a press conference, and, and I'll be quite honest with you, I haven't really covered the impeachment hearings on here, because it's completely not. When I mean bogus, I don't mean bogus in the sense of I think it's bogus, but if you look on the news, other, I mean, other than uh, if, if you look at the news, you're, you're seeing how grave it is, but then if you look around in the public, no one really cares. You either have people who think Donald Trump's going to get impeached, and then you have other people who don't think he's going to get impeached. And we all know once it gets to the Senate, the Senate's going to acquit, and Donald Trump is going to remain president up until 2020. And we're going to see where the, the 2020 reelection goes. We're going to talk about that in just a second. But I want to talk about Nancy Pelosi after she gave a, um, a press conference last week. She had this very wild moment where she's about to walk off the stage. Uh, James Rosen, a former reporter for, uh, of, of Fox News, asks her whether this, is, this impeachment hearing is all based on hatred for Trump because that's what a lot of Republicans and even Trump have been alleging, and that Democrats just want him out. This isn't about anything legally based. There's no actually – there's no actual crime that's been committed, and I think they have a point here. You're talking about we have had the lowest unemployment rate in over 50 years. Unemployment rate is historically low amongst African American and, Mex and, and Latinos. There's a new poll out, and I don't know if this is an outlier, but Donald Trump has 33% approval rating amongst African Americans. Usually, it's around 8%. So even if that 33% is only half of that, only at 15%, I have a I think Donald Trump is going to run away with this. I'm not a Donald Trump fan. I think he's abrasive, I think he's a jerk, I think he's socially liberal. When I mean socially liberal, he's he has he's been married three times, he cheats on his wife. At one point he was pro abortion, then he's pro life, and when he did take a pro life position, he took an unpopular pro-life position where he said that the women who get abortions should also be prosecuted until he had to be corrected on that and said, no, you do not prosecute women because women may not be in the right mind. They don't have the mens rea, meaning they don't have the training to understand that you are killing a human life. But I also am an issues voter. There are things where if I put personality aside and I say, look, I know he's a jerk. I know he's abrasive. I don't really care for him. I wouldn't even really be his friend. But let's look at the issues. When you start doing that, and I've done this actually. I'm, a, I'm an Uber driver in San Francisco, and I get to talking sometimes. I'm, I'm a talkable guy. I'm a chatty guy. People ask what I do, and I say I do a podcast. I'm in public affairs. I like politics. Then they start picking my brain, and – and you know, the, the, I usually tell them – I usually first start out with I'm an issues voter. I don't really care about, about personality. The first thing they say to me is, are you a Trump supporter? Because the underlying factor that we all know – and if you don't agree with this, I think you're sorely mistaken. But really what is on trial here is Donald Trump's personality, his abrasiveness. JFK and Bill Clinton were both charismatic guys. But you take away the personality, they're kind of jerks, cheating on their wives, lying under oath. And one of the reasons why Bill Clinton was never impeached is because he was charged with a low crime, not a high crime. So going back to this, <clears throat> excuse me, James Rosen asks her if she hates Trump. Nancy Pelosi turns around and just starts berating him in the most bizarre possible fashion. This is weird. This is absolutely weird. I'm going to play the tape. You tell me what you think. Or, excuse me, I'm going to play the tape. Think, think for yourself. I don't hate anybody. 
I did not accuse you. I asked the question. Representative Collins yesterday suggested that the Democrats are doing this simply because they don't like the guy. I think it's an important point. The president is a coward when it comes to helping uh, our, our kids who are afraid of gun violence. I think he is cruel when he doesn't deal with the, the, helping our dreamers, of which we're very proud. I think he's in denial about the about the uh, climate crisis. However, that's about the election. This is about the election. Take it up in the election. This is about the Constitution of the United States and the facts that lead to the president's violation of his oath of office. And as a Catholic, I resent your using the word hate in a sentence that addresses me. I don't hate anyone. I was raised in a way that is full, a heart full of love and always prayed for the president. And I still pray for the president. I pray for the president all the time. So don't mess with me when it comes to words like that. Yeah, uh-huh. Sure, sure you do. Sure you pray for the president. But let's unpack a couple of things here that I think I want to unpack for some of you viewers out there that are – some of you listeners that are ear hustling me right now. There's one thing that I want to talk about that I think has been missed on other conservative talk show radios like The Daily Wire, Ben Shapiro, Michael Knowles, even uh, Matt Walsh, also of The Daily Wire, who's also Catholic, and he also has a podcast. There's one thing that I think is actually missing that I think should be brought up with Catholics that do radio or that are that are opinion hosts or opine on these subjects. The first thing that you need to say is let's take the religiosity out of the politics. There are parallels with principles if you're said religious person, whether you're Catholic or Protestant or Jewish. But the one thing what as a Catholic myself that Nancy Pelosi gets wrong here is she's invoking her Catholicism, but the platform that she is on, not everybody in that room is Catholic. What about people who are agnostic and don't live up to her expectations? They're, when she gets on there, the rules aren't we are going to abide or have an expectation to abide by everybody's religion in here. Even like, for example, as and you guys can already hear, is that <clears> – <throat> Is, I, I'm I'm uh, I'm a I'm a pro-life conservative, but when I talk about pro-life and not killing children, I never invoke my religion. Never. I don't I don't need to invoke my religion. The only time that I will invoke my religion is if somebody says I'm a practicing Catholic and I'm pro-choice. Then I would say, okay, fine. You want to invoke your religion because we're both the same religion, or we're both Christians, or we're both God-fearing, and we're going to in invoke the same Bible. Then, then at that time, I will use my religion. I will use the Bible. But at this press conference, there's no religiosity here. She's not wearing even a, a rosary bracelet, and and then all of a sudden we expect her to be uh, Pope Pope Nancy Pelosi at this instance where everybody. Is expecting is expected to live up to her religious expectations? What a crock of crap! Now let's talk about her religiosity that she loves to invoke. Pelosi supports abortion up until birth. That means even seven months, a, a, a baby can be born at seven months at seven months, and she does not mind snapping that baby's neck in half because the mother. Feels like she should because it's the mother's body, the mother's choice, and not the human inside of her. She supports the idea that women can become men and men can become women. All teachings, all of these teachings, not supported by the Catholic doctrine. And yes, I get it. If you're at home and you're listening and you're going to bring up priests, get it. Yes, priests, bad. Priests who sexually abuse their their uh, children should be castrated and excommunicated and jailed. Okay? But the thing is, we're talking about Catholic doctrine, not not people like priests. Because and I and I say this I say this specifically because a priest can be bad, but doctrine never changes. Just like when you take the the health the the, the Hippocratic oath as a doctor. Medicine never changes, but the doctor does. If a doctor abuses his Hippocratic oath 
and hurts people like doc like the actual doctor death. Yes, in sports I took on the moniker Doctor Death, but there's an actual doctor, I believe in Texas, who was literally killing his patients. That doesn't make the medicine bad, it makes the actor bad. Same goes with priests, same goes with in the public sector, in the secular sector where you're talking about the YMCA and schools where where abuse is significantly higher than the Catholic Church. But here we're specifically talking about actors acting in good faith, and in Nancy Pelosi's case, she's taking on cafeteriaism. And shame on her. The, the difference between Nancy Pelosi and any other Catholic is that Nancy Pelosi, she is in a position to lead. If you, if you don't want to invoke your Catholicism, fine, I don't care. I'm sure that there are conservatives off the top of my head that are secular, that they're maybe agnostic. They don't ever invoke God or the Bible or Jesus, but they are only invoking their principles, their fundamentalisms. And yes, there are principles that align with the Catholic Church, but if you're going to go full on Nancy Pelosi and invoke your Catholic Church and invoke your, your Catholic faith, then you're also going to – you're putting yourself under a, a, a magnifying glass. Oh, if you're invoking your Catholic faith and you're only invoking it when it suits you, then you are now putting yourself up to criticism. Do you always live up to that? Are all Catholics perfect? No. I mean the, the word Israel, the word Israel, which is, which is in the Old Testament, it means struggle with God. Struggle with God means that you are trying your best, but you're going to struggle with him. Nancy Pelosi isn't struggling. She's full-on, full-blown full supporting abortion, in, ab abortion until birth. Gray Davis, he was – Gray Davis, former governor of my home state of California, he was excommunicated by the Catholic Church. L the late Monsignor Kavanaugh, he wrote, in a, he wrote uh, to ABC10 back in 1998 about Gray Davis, a leader of – Amer uh, a leader of American Holocaust, Gray Davis, was incurred automatic excommunication from the Catholic Church. The late Monsignor Kavanaugh wrote, uh, quote, Gray Davis is an outspoken militant champion of violence, the most cold-blooded violence of killers, pre-born and partially born human beings. Just a few weeks ago, just a few weeks ago, Joe Biden is refused Holy Communion and by a Catholic bishop. I believe it was in South Carolina. Joe Biden fully is aware of what he promotes, of what he is for. And uh and he puts his ideals out there for the public to hear as a politician. Of course he's going to get criticism from people in the church. And what I'm saying here is I really hope that the bishop here in the bishop in California excommunicates Nancy Pelosi and makes an example out of her because what that's going to do now what that is going to do is that's going to call the progressive left the progressive seculars and take that as a medal of honor but what that's going to do is that's going to specifically say there's a difference between you Nancy Pelosi and people who actually practice the catholic faith and I mean, as a Catholic, the one thing that I would tell anybody, whether it's Nancy Pelosi, whether it's you listening in the queue or wherever you are, I would strongly advise you not to invoke any of your religion, especially in the public discourse, because not everybody is your religion. Not everybody is, gonna, is going to live up to your standards, and I think she's completely in the wrong. I'm going to go to break really quick. When we come back, we are going to talk about uh, identity politics how Kamala Harris did not survive her identity politics. And lastly, we're going to get to my last word. My friend Shane Q was on The Voice. He made the top 10. And I, if you haven't done so, YouTube Shane Q. Follow him on Instagram, Shane Q Official. There's a lot we can learn from him. But first, we're going to get to identity politics, how Kamala Harris didn't survive. And we'll get back to you guys in just a second. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to The Ray Parrish Show. You feel free to call in, 516-387-1820. This is The Ray Parrish Show. Come back to me.
guys, welcome, welcome. You're listening to the Ray Parrish Show. This show has been talking about cafeteriaism and how people in the Catholic faith or who are religious or even one percenters like Bernie Sanders who are in the one percent – who are one percentile who pick and choose how they want to apply their policies. And in, and in Nancy Pelosi's case, she picks and chooses when she wants to actually be a Catholic and she went off on a reporter that said, don't you use hatred. Don't you tell me that I – do I hate somebody because that's not what I was taught in my Catholic faith. Nobody knows that. Not everybody knows that, even as a Catholic myself. That's not something that you want to hold another person who isn't Catholic accountable, and you don't go after them for using the word hate because they, they may not be practicing Catholic themselves. But you know what? Going on, I want to get into identity politics, and – I want to talk about Kamala Harris, who recently just dropped out of the presidential race. And I, I, you know, going <clears throat> covering Kamala Harris right before she dropped out, Maeve, Maeve Reston over at CNN, she covers politics. She has a piece about Kamala Harris's poll numbers as they tumble here in her state, in her home state of California. Maeve writes as the state's March five as. As California's March 5 primary draws closer, Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts has 23% approval or has 23%. Uh, former Vice President Joe Biden at 22 Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont, 21%, are now tied as leaders as the field among likely voters who are either registered as Democrat or identify as Democrat-leaning. This is according to a new Public Policy Institute of California poll. Harris tumbled because remember when she first came on and she announced she had this big coming out and she started out at 19%. In and in July she went down to 8% in the new poll by the institute failing to sustain the momentum she sparked with her first debate performance. She lost she lost significant ground over the summer while her chief rivals all solidified their standing among California voters. This includes Pete Buttigieg uh the, the mayor of – I'm drawing a blank right now, uh, and I have so much going on right now. And you have um, Bernie Sanders who campaigned here in California, here in Sacramento, uh, Indiana, excuse me. You have Pete Buttigieg who's really – Pete Buttigieg the mayor of the fourth largest city in, of, of Indiana, and he is gaining in popularity compared to her. Last week after Kamala Harris suspended – her campaign for the presidency, she she was she was saying that she doesn't think that America is is ready for an African American woman to be president. Beatrice Peterson over at ABC over at ABC News reports Harris Harris, a woman who is both black and Indian American, wondered aloud if America was ready for a woman and a woman of color to be president of the United States. An issue that Kamala has brought up on the campaign trail, as well questioning whether her race and gender might be a hindrance to her presidential bid amid the largest group of American contenders, contenders the American Party has ever seen. But there's only one problem with this. Before I continue, before I get into this, it's also too this field. This field includes an openly gay mayor, a Hindu Pacific Islander woman, and an African American senator, and a Latino formerly former cabinet former cabinet secretary, and also an Asian-American businessman. But there's only one problem with Kamala's contention that America isn't ready for an African-American president. You want to know what that problem is? We're only in the primaries. We haven't gone to the general election yet. So the problem that Kamala Harris is seeing is in her party. And going back to um, – I just want to – Clarify this, Pete Buttigieg, mayor of South Bend, Indiana. Now, this is all about the identity politics that the left loves to play, and sometimes like like they're like they're playing cafeteriaism here. They get to pick and choose when they want to use this identity politics. You're not ready for a black woman. You're not ready. You're not ready uh, for a gay man. But yet, when when you have like Rashida Tlaib, who endorses Bernie Sanders, isn't Bernie Sanders uh, – uh, Rashida Tlaib and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the, the fresh new faces of the Democratic Party, endorse Bernie Sanders, and then people on the right say, 
why are you endorsing an old, rich, white man? What about Kamala Harris? What about a gay man? What about an Asian man? And then the left contends we are picking people off of their qualifications. Color should not matter. Genitals and the way how your, your sex should not matter. What your genitals, what you have down south doesn't matter. Well, maybe I think it kind of does matter. Or, or, or could it be that her policies just suck and her records suck? I got news for you guys. If Michelle Obama jumped into this race tomorrow, tomorrow, she would be the front runner. And as Ben Shapiro of the Daily Wire said, and he said this, and he's completely right. If if Michelle Obama jumps in the race tomorrow, she wins. She wins. And the only way – and she, she will beat – if Michelle Obama jumps in, she will beat Donald Trump handedly. However, however, okay, the other day, Representative John Yarmuth, D- Democrat from Kentucky, d- in a – an interview with CNN warned his party during a CNN interview on Monday that trying to remove President Donald Trump from office is bad politics because of who he believes Republicans will select to run in 2020 if Trump is impeached. He says, quote, I do think that it's the right thing. I, I do think that it's the right thing to do to remove him from office. I believe he's in imminent danger to this country and to our democracy. But I was saying that the political consequences may not be very good for the Democrats, Yarmuth said. He continued, I will guarantee you that the Republican Party would not nominate Mike Pence to succeed him. They would nominate someone like Nikki Haley, who would be much more difficult for Democrats to defeat. Nikki Haley, former two-time South Carolina governor and former UN amb- and former U.S. UN, uh, former ambassador to the U.N., Yes, he's completely right. And you know what Nikki Haley is? Nikki Haley is from Indian descent. Michelle Obama, African-American. Those two women going head-to-head, there would probably be a high turnout. I would almost guarantee that there would be a high turnout for that. So maybe, just maybe, Kamala, you just suck. Maybe that people just saw you as someone as as an attorney general who, again – Took took part of cafeteriaism. That you pro- how many how many people did she did she prosecute for smoking marijuana? But then she goes on a radio show and said that oh she smoked a doobie, but she lied about it. She, when asked on this radio show what she listened to when she smoked, she said Tupac and Snoop Snoop Dogg. Tupac Tupac and if you go back to the date when she was in college, Tupac and Snoop didn't release their albums. Until like seven years after that fact. So we don't even know if she actually smoked marijuana. And if she did smoke marijuana, she's only picking and choosing what's right for her, what's right for her constituents. And I got to tell you, everybody sees right through this. And right now, Joe Biden, the most whitest, the most senile, the most oldest candidate of the bunch, has the highest African-American support. And uh, what's his name? Uh, Spartacus. Spartacus uh, running for mayor or run, running for running for president. Cory Booker. He's African American, and he has very little support amongst the African American community. Could it be that the African American community doesn't give a damn about what you look like? Maybe they only care really about your politics and how you're going to make your life better. That's it. And if Joe Biden has the highest support in South Carolina where predominantly African-Americans, if he has a predominant support amongst the Democrats, amongst the African-American vote, and Donald Trump has 30% approval rating amongst African-Americans, then you're going to have two white guys going up against each other because of their policies, not because of their identity. I'll tell you right now before I go to break, I'll tell you right now, I'm job hunting right now. If I found out that my job wants to hire me only because I look Latino and not because of what I have, what, not because of my experience, not because of what I can provide to the company, but because of the color of my skin or my cultural background, I'm walking out. That's insulting to me. And if this continues, 
Trump's going to win the election. You play these identity politics, Trump's going to win this election. Hey, guys, I'm going to go to break really quick. When we come back, I'm going to talk about my friend Shane Q, who was on The Voice, something that I can learn from him, something that you can learn from him. Uh, go listen to him on YouTube at Shane Q. Man, did a, master, did a masterful um, a masterful performance on The Voice. Don't want to worry, guys. You're listening to The Ray Appara Show here on a Blog Talk Radio. We'll be right back. Doctor, maybe an actress, but nothing comes easy. It takes much practice. Like, I met a woman who's becoming a star. She was very beautiful, leaving people in awe. Singing songs, Lena Horn, but the younger version hung with the wrong person. Got a stronger than her when cocaine, sniffing up drugs, all in her nose. Could have died so young, now looks ugly and old. No fun, cause now when she reaches for hugs, people hold their breath. Cause she smells of corrosion and death. Watch the company you keep and the crowds you bring. Cause they came to do drugs and you came to sing. So if you're going to be the best, I'ma tell you how. Put your hands in the air and take the vow. I know I can. Hey guys, welcome, welcome. You guys are listening to the Ray Pear Show here on Blog Talk Radio. Thanks so much for tuning in. We have been really talking about cafeteriaism in politics and how some politicians pick and choose what they want, what they like. But really, at now what we're going to get into, we're going we're gonna to get into really uh, pop culture, what's been happening, what's been trending. If you've been watching TV, maybe you've been on Twitter. I don't know if you guys watch the show The Voice. I had a friend of mine, a really good friend of mine. His name is Shane Q. I know him as Shane Kitachai. Shane Q, he's a friend of mine here in Sacramento, and he joined The Voice. Now, a little bit about Shane. He's a very he's a shy guy, very humble, very nice guy, and but he's he's very shy. He's he's not a guy to go out there and chase the spotlight. I am. I'm that guy. I, I'm a camera whore. I'll, I'll admit it. But the thing with Shane is I got to say as a friend, I'm, I'm really proud of him. And I think there's something that we can learn about Shane. So what happened was is Shane went to The Voice in late July, early August, and he had a performance. And his first song was Tennessee Whiskey. And mind you that this performance was broadcasted to over, what, 10 million people? And I know Shane is really good. I've known Shane is a damn good singer. But what I did not know is that Shane was an extraordinary singer. And if you get the chance, go YouTube Shane on YouTube. Just type in Shane Tennessee Whiskey, and his performance for The Voice will come up. And when Shane did the performance of Tennessee Whiskey, I thought two things. The first one was, that's extraordinary. That's absolutely extraordinary. I, like, I, that was a damn good performance. The second thought I, the, the second I thought was he just set the bar so high that his next performances have to be that great. They have to be that phenomenal. Now, this is the part that I'm proud of him as a friend. I admire the most as a friend. And really, and I really urge you, go back and look at all of his performances. What Shane did was is he came out with a couple of, of uh, other performances. One of them, I don't really remember the second one, but it was a performance to his mother. Then he did Mercy by Shawn Mendes, and then he did Caribbean Queen. Now, the reason why I really specifically bring this up is look at any performer, let's say Michael Jackson, let's say Brian McKnight, any top performer that you can think of over the last 20 years, Shane had to endure something that they really didn't have to in the beginning. And that one thing is social media. Back in the early 90s, in the late 80s, Michael Jackson didn't have YouTube or Facebook or Twitter to see what people were saying in real time about his performance. Imagine if the Jackson 5 were performing in the late seven, in the, in the 70s and people were typing away what they thought about Jackson 5 or Michael Jackson as a kid. Yeah, you're going to have a lot of people saying, wow, Jackson 5 are phenomenal. But you're also going to get those assholes that are saying Jackson 5 suck, who's this kid? And that's what Shane, Shane was reading all the comments. And the kudos that I want to give to Shane is 
he was actually reading, of course, people were big fans of his, like myself. I texted Shane every day and I said, bro, that was phenomenal. At what point I said, um, Shane, you're going to have a lot of people blowing up your cell phone texting. And, and his response to me was, yeah, only you. And I laughed about it. But Shane also read the negative comments. And this is where I have to admire him is some of the negative comments about him were really constructive. Some said that he had no facial expression. Some said, I think some, he only sunk through his nose. Some said that he had no personality. Some said that um, he, he can only hit some of the high notes and he wasn't clear. And the one thing that I really liked about him and admire about him is he took every constructive criticism from my view and he applied it to his next performance. And he, yeah, was he fighting for his life? Yes, of course. But he also could have been hard-headed and say, man, these people don't know what they're talking about. They're not singers. I've been doing this for years. I'm going to continue doing what I'm doing. Shane did that, meaning he took the criticism. He, without a doubt, he applied it to every performance. I'll admit there's some songs I don't think Shane should have sung. I didn't like. I didn't really care for Caribbean Queen. Did a damn good job of it though. He did. A, he did a good job. I wish he did another song like Boys to Men, Casey and JoJo All My Life. But another thing that Shane did was is he said, "My dad likes Caribbean Queen. I think I can sing it. I'm going to take on this hurdle. I'm going to take on this challenge, and I'm going to do the best thing that I can." That's what Shane did. Now I apply this to you guys, my listeners. Is Imagine wherever you work, whether you type up emails, you type up a press release, you are giving um, a presentation to 15 people. Imagine doing what you do, your email, your presentation, your press release. Imagine doing that and having 20 million people look at your email. I think all of a sudden, just by that thought and that thought alone, looking at your email, looking at your presentation, having 20 million people scrutinize your every stroke, your every word, your, your every speech of your presentation, you might be thinking a little bit differently about your presentation. You may be – and here's the reality of things. You hear a lot of performers, a lot of celebrities maybe go through some depression because they can't handle the criticism. And you look more specifically at Shane. He was a nobody, meaning he wasn't a celebrity, and he thrusted himself overnight. He had talent. And he went up against some of the best singers, some of the people that he went up against in the top 10, the top 20. He beat them because he, it was, he, he had to overcome his talent, yes, but then he also had to take the criticism to make himself better. And I applaud Shane for that. He did damn good. And I got to tell you, so about three years ago myself, I was on the cover of Sports Illustrated, and I, was, I went from a nobody and a fan to being on the cover of Sports Illustrated where I was seen globally and came with it was praise and celebrations and congratulations, but then also came with it criticism, a lot of criticism on social media, and I learned from it. And I, from my experience, I know what Shane's going through and the way how he's handling it. Freaking awesome. Go, um, go search for him on YouTube um, on Shane Q and just see the progress that he made as a singer. And I got to – the way how – what I would say to you guys is whatever you do in your work, whether – I don't know, you're in publications like I am, you're in event coordinating, whatever you, whatever you do, ask yourself what can you do to make yourself better? What criticisms are there about you that you can apply to make yourself better? Because another thing too is, is I noticed that Shane is around phenomenal, uh, talented singers, and he learned from them. Um, and he made himself better, took the criticism with grace, and he added it to his performance, and millions of people really got to see his talent. So kudos to Shane, man. He's phenomenal. Um, like I, Again, go YouTube him, uh, do Shane Q, The Voice. You can also see it on The Voice's Facebook page. Um, proud to call Shane my friend um, and how he took it with grace and how, uh, how much humility he has. Phenomenal. Really great. Proud of the guy. Um, hey, guys, that's the Ray Parrish Show. Thanks so much for uh, tuning in. I was also actually doing uh, a, a multicast on my Facebook page. So thanks, everybody, for, for tuning in. I didn't get to read any of the comments. But, yeah, go, go YouTube my friend at Shane Q. I'm Ray Parrish. This is the Ray Parrish Show.
and I will talk to you guys soon. Thanks so much.